Thank you, Russell. Nancy, be turning to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is one of the most familiar of all the parables. There's about three that just about everyone knows, uh, and this is be one of them. In fact, the hero of the story now becomes synonymous with anybody who goes out of their way to throw show true kindness in hard circumstances. We all talk about the good Samaritans who put themselves at risk, go above and beyond. And this parable, of course, does deal with the issue of genuine kindness. But also, this parable goes a lot deeper than that. It deals with a lot more than kindness and helpfulness to those in need. It deals with a deeply personal issue that we all have. So we want to read this parable and the event, of course, that prompted it in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for the parables. We thank you you've made your word and your will plain to us. As your will is made plain to us, we ask that you would just give us hearing ears and understanding hearts, and Father, that we would respond and make things right with you today. You know what we need. Reveal that to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is called a parable. But it's very likely a true account. And here's the reason why. 
Uh, Jesus, of course, tells the story in which the hero of the story is actually a villain in the eyes of the Jewish people. All we know is the man's called a Samaria, a Samaritan, that he's from Samaria. But you have to understand, between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, there was some bad blood going back about 700 years. And in 700 years before, the Babylonians had drawn away the Jewish people into captivity, but left some of them behind. The Babylonians, of course, populated the area around Palestine. Those that were left behind by necessity just intermarried with the Babylonian people. The pure bloodline Jews that were deported and came back found out, of course, that all of these Jewish people had defiled the bloodline and married into another nationality. And there was some such harsh blood that they would tell them, you can't come to the temple. So the Samaritans built them a, a, their own place of worship because in their eyes they were still Jewish people. And they wanted to worship. Well, that made the other Jewish people even more furious. And for hundreds of years, the Samaritans were viewed as being inferior. They were viewed as being inferior spiritually. They were viewed as being inferior culturally. They were viewed as being inferior racially. And there was a deep abiding distrust and dislike between Jewish people and the Samaritan people to the point where it was not just a title for the people that came from Samaria, it was the equivalent of a bad word that you would call people. Because if you remember, there was a time where the Jewish leaders looked at Jesus and said, and you're a Samaritan. They knew where Jesus was from. They knew Jesus was a Jewish man who came from Jewish bloodline, who lived in Galilee. What were they doing? They were calling him a racially offensive term, even though he did not belong to Samaria. So we realized it was a very negative thing. And for Jesus to say, and the hero of the story is a Samaritan, they could have said, oh, you're just making it up. We're just going to discount the whole story. That is why very likely it was a true story that Jesus was telling. So here's what we have, of course, about the parable. Here's what we understand. First of all, the road was a very treacherous road. It was from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road starts out if you're coming from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is about 2,300 feet above sea level. In 17 miles, it drops to 1,300 feet below sea level. We have a 3,600-foot drop in elevation. Now, to give you an idea of just how this is, Mount Magazine is the highest point in Arkansas. Up in the rugged Ozark Mountains, it's only 2,700 feet above sea level. You have quite a bit of drop. I don't know if any of you ever drove along the pig trail up there, I think 23 going up to Fayetteville. And you have all those switchbacks and so forth. Very similar to that, except it's harsh, rugged terrain. Hardly any trees, rugged terrain. Uh, switchbacks, caves, boulders, 17 miles. And if you're coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's even worse. Well, how's that? Well, you're walking uphill. 
So we realize how was transportation done in those days? All by foot or by horseback. Either way, it was treacherous because of the terrain. Secondly, it was treacherous because of the human threat. Now, we just simply read here that robbers robbed this man. Well, this was not an isolated incident. This was known as the bloody road. And it was dangerous all the way up through the 1930s. You see, all the Roman roads didn't extend to there. And quite recently, in the late 1900s, a nice new highway from Jerusalem to Jericho was put in. Up until then, it was the bloody way. In fact, it was a Bible uh, scholar named Morton who wrote a book about the steps of Jesus. And he was in that part of the world in the 1930s. And he was going to go up from Jerusalem to Jericho. And they said, you be back before dark. Because after dark, that road is too dangerous to be on. They even had two or three well-known outlaws that known to hang out there. And they gained a name from themselves because of how ruthless they were. Said, that's their territory. You don't go there. And we all know the stories of different towns. And we say, this is horrible. That Some people will say, oh, yeah, that neighborhood, even the police don't go there. During travels, Turkish guards would have to go. You remember the Knights of the Templar? They were formulated to help protect that road. So we realize it was known for a long time. So this road was very dangerous. We have the people involved. There's three normal people. You want to call them normal. Normal in the Jewish eyes. First of all, there's the man that got robbed. It just says a certain man. Now the implication here, because it was from Jerusalem to Jericho, right in the heart of Jewish territory, that he was a Jewish man. Everybody could pretty much understand and pretty much accepted that. So he was just a certain man. No title, nothing to differentiate him. It could be you or me. It could be anybody. But we know that what Jesus is saying, a man just like us got robbed. Now the other two were even more normal or more established with credentials as anybody else. A priest and a Levite. Can't get any more Jewish than that. So we deal with the people who knew God's law, who knew of God's standards, who the most likely people in the world to show kindness. Those are the other two people involved. And then you have the outsider, the Samaritan, of course. Then you see the responses. And of course, a lot of times we give the priest and the Levite a lot of bad press, don't we? Because look at what they did. There's a man all beat up on the side of the road. And one of them walks by on the other side. One of them comes over and peeps at him a little bit. And he gets on the other side and he takes off. Well, let me tell you. Their responses to the average normal person were very predictable. Very understandable. They did what probably about everybody else would do. Because it's defensible. That was a dangerous road. You didn't want to stop. Sometimes they had plant decoys, actually, that would look like they're hurt. And then you'd be in a bad way. You didn't know what was going on. Then there was the priest. If the man happened to be dead and he touches him, well, then he's disqualified from priestly service for two weeks. 
So we understand everybody had their defense and they had their rational explanation. But then we have the other guy, the other guy who shows radical compassion. Radical compassion because it involved expense. To help this man was not going to be cheap. First of all, he had to take a risk. Second of all, it took time. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm traveling, and especially if I'm traveling across a wide expanse, man, I'm wanting to eat up as much highway as possible. We don't stop unless we have to fill up with gas or take a restroom break. And it really needs to be the same time, doesn't it? Oh, we don't. men are like that. We, we want to hit that highway. We stop and we take a break, and I'm thinking how many miles we could be up the road. You, all of you kind of know that way as well. In order for him to stop and help this man, he had to invest his time. I mean, daylight's burning. I could be up the road. I need to be where I'm going. He had to stop and invest his life and interrupt his trip and his day to help the guy. There was also some effort. Obviously, this man was traveling on horseback. What happened? He got off and put this man on his own beast. That meant he had to walk the rest of the way. He had to put out some effort. And also, there was the expense There was the expense. So we understand he had to pay some money. He had to use some of his own oil and wine. Then he had to pay for the guy's room. Then he had to pay, of course, for uh, the, the rest of his upkeep. This was radical. The risk also that he took was not just on the road. It was actually at the end. Now, what risk did he take at the end? He took care of the guy... And then he is leaving, he take, took two days' wages, gave to the innkeeper, and said, you take care of him. And whatever else you spend, I'll pay it when I come back. Hmm. I don't know if I'd have done that. I don't know if I'd have done that. What if the innkeeper was dishonest? Maybe, what if he was dishonest? And I don't know how much he would have spent. I don't even know that he would take that money and take care of the guy. He could have put it in his own pocket, booted him out. He had to take a risk to trust this guy. So we understand he had to take a lot of risk to show radical compassion. Why is it so radical? Well, it had been radical for the priest and the Levite, but they were dealing with a man who was just like them. He was one of them, and they wouldn't help him. And here's a guy that stopped to help a person who was not like him. It goes even further. He stopped to help a person who probably did not like him because he was a Jewish man. Here's a man who did not like Samaritans, most likely. And the Samaritan stopped and helped him anyway. And Jesus more or less said, that's how we show true compassion. That's how we show true compassion. So there's the parable. But we miss. The whole story, if we don't go to the next point, and that's the question that started it all. A certain lawyer stood up. Now, this was not just a regular uh, attorney in civil law or criminal law. When we say lawyer, this was an expert in Bible law. He was an expert in Scripture, of the law of the Lord. 
Here's a man who knew his Bible inside and out. And he stands up and he asks Jesus a question. And he asks concerning the universal search of all humanity. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now we mentioned this before when we're talking about eternal life. There's, there was in the Jewish way of thinking, there was two measurements of life. First of all, it was in quantity and time. In other words, eternal life is just that. It lasts forever. Now, we can understand that. But also when they talked about eternal life, they talked about life as, as far as quality, fulfillment, satisfaction, deep abiding peace and joy. So he's asking two questions, not just what shall I do to live forever, but what can I do to find that place of life where I'm truly Finding purpose and joy in life. Everyone's looking for that. Every single person. Even if they're not thinking along spiritual terms, they're not thinking about living forever, they're all searching for true, deep-seated satisfaction, joy, and peace in life. That was the question. But he asked it for an unhealthy reason. It says he stood up and wanting to test Jesus. I think the King James says to tempt him. It meant really to put him to the test. He wasn't concerned yet about his own spiritual life. He thought he would engage Jesus in some sort of debate because they tend to like to do that. And he did it in a public way. So he's wanting really to trap Jesus in something. And so he said... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus, knowing he's an expert in the law, he said, what's the Bible say? It's a good answer. In other words, this man should have known that anyway. Why was he asking the question? Well, Jesus knew that, and he knew why he was asking the question. So in other words, you're going to try to put me to the test? He turned the coin around, and he said, what does the Bible say? Then... He asked this, what is your response to the question, to the Bible? What is written in the law, and what is your response to it? What is your reading of it? Whoa, talking about being put to the test, this man was an expert, and that's what prompted the question because he knew it inside and out. There was not an argument he couldn't win. So when he asked the question, Jesus has simply said, what's the Bible say? And then he said, and what's your response to what the Bible says? Wow. Isn't that typically what we should do here every time we come together at church? What's the Bible say? What's my response to what the Bible says? And then this man answers correctly. He was right down the letter. He knew there was two answers he gave. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, I think beginning at about verse 4. It's called the Shema. Now, it starts off, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not only did he know that, he had it written on his wrist. There was a little leather box on his wrist, a little leather pouch, and in that was written the Shema. It's called a phylactery, and all of the experts in the law had it. He had a piece of jewelry with it on it. 
So he knew that. And then he says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We recognize that as coming from the Sermon on the Mount, but that's actually found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Everything all above board now. Kind of sounds like he's, he's doing pretty good on sparring with the master. And Jesus, of course, doing very good in sparring with the lawyer. Now here's the hook. But he, wanting to justify himself, asked, who is my neighbor? Now the question, who is my neighbor, is the one that prompted the parable. But now here's the hook. He, wanting to justify himself. Now wait a minute, stop right there. Now, he's an expert in the law, knows it back and forth. He is a, he's pretty much arrived when it comes to a relationship with God. He, above all people, should have it right between him and God because he knows the Bible inside and out. But Jesus tells him this, and he responds to it, and Jesus says, do this and you'll live, and then he wants to find a loophole. He's not comfortable with that answer. Why does he say, he says, who's my neighbor? Uh-oh. Why would he ask the question, and who's my neighbor? Jesus just said, you're right. The Bible says, love your neighbor and yourself. You do this and you'll live, and he's uncomfortable with it. Because obviously there's somebody he doesn't love. And he wants to know if it's okay if he doesn't love them. Now, you have to look and read that in there, but that's pretty obvious. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just who do I have to love? What's the other side of that coin? Who can I get by without loving? So we understand he's quite uncomfortable with it. You remember when Jesus talks to the rich, young ruler, and he mentions, of course, the commandments to keep, and the man's wanting that. He asks the same question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him all these. He said, I've done all of these. But then he asked the question, what do I lack yet? You see, this is the same feeling this guy had. Whoa, wait a minute. Who do I have to love? He's unsatisfied with his life when it's held up against God's word. Now, at this particular point, it would have been the right thing to do to, of course, throw yourself on the mercy of God and understand, I can't keep the law. But that's not what he does. What does it say? He wants to justify himself. In his attempt to justify himself, he convicts himself, right? So anytime we try to find rationalization, excuses, answers, defense on why we're not doing God's word, we don't justify ourselves, we convict ourselves. And he convicted himself and he totally skips the issue of a relationship with God. But he goes to the point that he can quibble on. Who's my neighbor? Looking for a loophole. This was obviously a prevailing attitude. When Jesus mentioned loving your neighbor on the Sermon of the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew verse 43, he said, you've heard that it's been said you can love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now Jesus specifically said, this is a prevailing saying. What that meant is that was the cultural norm. That's what people normally did. That's what was humanly expected. We can love our neighbor, hate our enemy, but we ask ourselves, well, then again, there's a loophole here. I don't have to love everybody. But the expert in the law was hooked by the law itself because in the same 
chapter, Leviticus chapter 19, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, this verse appears. Verse 33, if a stranger, that means a foreigner, dwells in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you, you shall be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself. What's he talking about? The stranger, the alien, the immigrant, the one who is not like us. Love him as yourself. So the fact that he asked the question, and just who is my neighbor, that pretty much convicted him because according to the law itself, everybody should be the object of this kind of love. Jesus said, this do and you shall live. So you ask the question, was Jesus saying works for salvation? Absolutely not. Here's the reason why. What what was the first instruction to inherit eternal life? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. It is impossible to love God like that without a faith in him. It is impossible to love Jesus like that without accepting him as your Lord. You can't love like that if you're lost. So the very fact of doing that does not say works for salvation, but it has to do with our relationship with God. But then again, an improper love for others, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, reveals to us an improper love for God and convicts us of our need for a Savior. John said it this way in the letter of 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Which tells us that a profession of faith is not sufficient. Faith is sufficient. And there's a difference. A profession of faith without true faith is not sufficient. It's not just the words. True faith is required. But notice what he says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, there's the profession, and hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen How can he love God whom he has not seen? This is the commandment we have from him. He who loves God must love his brother also. So this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is a diagnostic tool. And if I have hatred toward others and cannot love others with a Christ-like love, then that reveals that there's a problem between me and God. That's exactly what it says. We can't love another person that we can look at. How can we say we love God that we have not seen? Could you catch what he's dealing with here? So we realize this passage of Scripture reveals our inadequacy when it comes to keeping the law. Because I'm going to tell you, 
we all have a dislike and a hatred at some time before somebody towards somebody else. We do. You've had it. I've had it. People who aren't like us, people who don't like us, people who act a certain way, people who look a certain way. That just shows us we all need a Savior. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says this, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. And you say, well, what hope do we have then? Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our inadequacies to keep the law. We can have salvation, eternal life through Jesus Christ, but we can't justify ourselves. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be judged. This man should have recognized this and acknowledged his need for salvation, but instead, what did he want to do? Justify himself. It's a very common response to conviction and to God's word. So the lawyer's two issues of eternal life are our issues today. Number one, eternal life when it comes to being saved, quantity. That's found in that first part of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That deals with, of course, accepting Christ for salvation, having our sins removed, and being able to love God with a pure heart because our heart's been made pure by the blood of Christ. But then there's this second issue of eternal life. Life of quality. Life of purpose. Life of true joy. Where's that found? Well, yes, it's found in relationship with God, but let me tell you, if you want to find purpose in life, love the unlovable. And truly act on that love. And help the, the helpless. And help those who can't help themselves. Is it going to take a risk? Sure it is. Is it going to cost? Sure it will. Well, sooner or later we get taken advantage of and we're going to look like a fool because we trusted somebody and we did the wrong thing and they took advantage of us? Absolutely it will happen. But what's the cost if we do nothing? What's the cost? We have traded in the heart of Christ for the convenience of not looking like an idiot because somebody took advantage of us. That's too high of a cost to pay. But most likely, in most situations, what's going to happen is this. Your kindness to others will show them the love of Christ that no word could ever show. It's worth the risk. So you want to find eternal life, faith in Christ, absolute love for God, Quality of life, loving like Jesus, even when it costs. His two issues are solved in the person of Jesus Christ. As we prepare for an invitation of him. You see, this parable is a lot more about whether I'm not going to take the time to help somebody. That's all about it. It has to deal with a deep-rooted issue, deep-rooted issue of your relationship with God. And sometimes our relationship with others reflect the reality of that relationship with God. If there's a deficit, it's not their fault. It's our fault. And we need to make it right with Christ. Whatever your need is, as we stand and sing, what number?